Um, good evening. So I'm going to talk a little bit this evening about a lady called Emma Richards. And use her as an example of some of the adventures that we've had in our archive. And I first came across Emma when, I think on day two of working at Bethlehem, when I came across her photograph. And at that point, I didn't know that she was Emma. I was just intrigued by um, the photograph, particularly because it looked like she had three hands. Um, you see, there's, there's one here, which is actually her, her hand, and her other one here. And this is someone else's hand who was holding her, maybe because um, she was shaking or upset. We're not sure, obviously, um, exposure times being what they were. And I was intrigued by that, and also her dress. She's wearing something called strong clothing, which is not a restraint, like a straitjacket, but it is a, a kind of um, strong dress made of canvas, sometimes padded, as you see here. It might have been used to slow up uh, movement in somebody who might dart off and, uh, and injure themselves. And all I knew at this point was that she was ER and she was suffering from purple mania. She's part of a collection in Bethlehem of about 60 photographs taken by the society photographer Henry Herring, who we think was commissioned by the superintendent of Bethlehem to take a series of asylum photos. And these are very different from the photos that you get of asylum patients later in the century. They're much more like, um, like, more like portraits, I suppose. Fortunately... The archivist had been there before me, and he knew that she was Emma Richards. Um, he'd done quite a lot of work in terms of trying to identify who the sitters were, and we can identify about half of them at the moment. So that then took me to her case notes. I was really quite intrigued then to see who, what the paper trail might be for this individual, because all of these people are people who ordinarily would not have left much in the way of a paper trail, um, probably just a record of their birth, their death, their marriage, etc. And I went to the case notes for her just to see what we could find, and, and you, you're looking at something that is the first page of the entry for that photograph. And recorded there, I found that it did throw some light on who she was. Um, we could find out that, for instance, her family had similarly been affected by insanity. And also that this was not her first admission, that she'd been in Bethlehem three times before. Unfortunately, it didn't say when. So we then had to go back to the archive and look up the admission registers, which were very helpful, um, to add to this information. So this particular record, the one that fits with the photograph, told me that um, she was someone who had very little education. She couldn't read and write. She has no occupation listed. We know that she has four children. And we know that this particular attack started when her baby was three weeks old. She was now refusing to have anything to do with the baby, not bonding at all. And she wouldn't even have the baby anywhere near her. And that then prompted us to look further. And the admission registers then told us that, yes, OK, we can trace when else she was in Bethlehem. 
and discovered that her first admission had been in 1853 when her eldest daughter had died and she had then had further admissions after the birth of each baby and the pattern seems to be very very similar she would have a baby within a month of giving birth she would become ill she would then um, be admitted to hospital stay around nine or ten months get well again go home and have another baby and the whole thing would start again so we then thought well that's a little bit about her but what would her experience have been like in Bethlehem in that period this is somebody who's been here four times unfortunately for us the archive provided quite a good um, selection of evidence we have a number of photos Emma for all her admissions in the 1850s would have been in this building which we know today as the Imperial War Museum at St George's Fields and we had a number of photos about what it might have been like and also in the archive this from the Illustrated London News which shows the ward that Emma would have been in this is actually the gallery the bedrooms would have been off this and you may be looking at it thinking it looks quite genteel and indeed it is because Emma's period in the hospital coincided with the arrival of Charles Hood the man we think commissioned her photograph amongst others and he was particularly reforming and set about making a whole series of changes at Bethlehem, which, going back to the archive, the annual reports were very keen to tell us about. So, for instance, in 1854, one of the years that Emma was, was in Bethlehem, it talks about the improvement carried out in the construction of the windows has materially altered the character and appearance of the wards, imparting to them an air of freedom and cheerfulness, not less apparent to the patients than visitors. Admitting such an ample supply of cheerful light is to exercise a marked influence on the comforts and spirits of the patients. This alteration has been accompanied by considerable additions to the furniture and fitting of the wards, such as deemed likely to conduce to the welfare of the patients. And for Emma, this would have all been treatment. Actually, the environment was seen as a very um, important part of their regime at Bethlehem. So we were starting to fill out a little bit of her experience in the hospital. Um, still not found out a whole lot about her in particular, though. Um, we could go back again to the annual reports to find out what her day might have been like. Uh, really quite regimented. The archive also provided us with a wealth of information about what she would have eaten. Quite a lot of bread and butter, by the looks of it. Um, Betham at this time was, was reasonably um, self-sufficient or in some things, and, and we certainly know had vegetable gardens and, uh, and the rest. But what intrigued me starting at Betham was, well, how were people actually being treated? On each of Emma's admissions, <coughs> it says that she was discharged, cured. How was this brought about? We've mentioned the environment, but the case notes really don't mention very much at all about what was actually happening because the hospital wrote their case notes solely for their own use they weren't going to be read by anyone else they weren't going to be used by anybody else they would have seen regard uh, reporting treatment as really superfluous they knew what they were doing they weren't thinking of somebody 150 years later trying to work it out 
So on that front, the archive was a little bit um, lacking. What it did record, though, were details much more about Emma herself um, and her time in the hospital. So it talks about a little bit about the medication that she received. Not very much at all. They only really had opiates to calm down manic patients. But it did focus quite a lot on her behaviour and how she was presenting. Um, and that started to feel like really quite a, a very sad story for us. So one admission talks about her being very excitable, using obscene and violent language, threatening everyone and being very incoherent. She was placed in the India rubber room, which is about here, which today we would, we would know as a, a padded cell. And we're told that she had to have her head shaved because she would smear herself with faeces every night. Um, in the same admission, we hear about her being put to work in the laundry, um, just along here. And physical work like gardening or laundry or helping out around the hospital was another part of treatment in the hospital at the time. And activity was really the twin to environment in terms of bringing about some kind of cure. So here, this is a slightly later period um, than Emma, but we know that such things still went on. This is a sewing party. Um, whereas today we would encourage people to talk about their problems, we think that talking about something is, is a good way of, of dealing with it. In the 19th century, they thought that was the last thing you should do. If you were talking about your problems, you were dwelling on them. So Emma would have been encouraged to join the sewing group, go to the art class, go to the choir, and go to the ball when she was sufficiently well. Betham had a ballroom, and twice a month there was a patient dance. So, so far, the archive has provided us with, with quite a lot. We've had a photograph, we've had case notes, we've had admission registered, we've had more photographs, more lantern slides, um, annual reports. Filled out quite a lot of information about, um, if not necessarily her, but a little bit more about her stay. Um, Oh, <laughs> sorry. Um, the annual report, again for the year that Emma is in, talks about the marked improvement produced by constantly recurring occupation on the bodily health of the inmates of the hospital is only equalled by the improvement of their mental condition. Their minds led away from the contemplation of sad and often painful subjects by that which is placed before them. It invariably happens that those patients are the most cheerful and make most certain and rapid progress towards a cure who are most constantly and actively engaged. Well, Emma does recover. And... Ooh, I promise you she does. But it's not going to move on. <laughs> Sorry? Just click on the screen with the mouse. Okay. And no try? Perfect, thank you. Um, Emma does recover because there is a second photograph of her. Um, so this again is 1857. It's the pair to the photograph that I showed you at the beginning. A number of our photographs in the series have before and after. They're looking for changes in posture, in body language expression. And here is Emma just before um, she is due to go home. She's had a little bit of an up-and-down recovery, when they thought that she was well enough to be discharged, they sent her out on a bit of a practice, and that was quite common. You would go home for a couple of days or maybe a week. And there is a report 
um, in the casebook. She was well enough to go out with her husband, and it is feared drank too much. At any rate, she appeared the worse for drink when she returned in the evening. The next morning, she was as bad and violent as ever. Her language is the most disgusting and obscene that could be imagined, and her behaviour matched it. Um, but after that setback, she does recover, and here she's very much more the Victorian lady, isn't she? Um, you know, firmly lays into her corset. She's got her book, um, you know, a very typical stance that we might expect in a photograph such as this. And there's a lot of speculation about how posed these photos might be or what um, involvement the sitter might have in, in producing it. And in a way, I fear that I should end there because... Um, perfect timing. <laughs> well... If, if I can have another 30 seconds, I fear I should end there because that's the sort of, that's the good bit of the story because that's where we thought it ended. Emma is discharged, you can see the difference for yourself and she does not make another appearance in the case books and we had presumed up until two weeks ago that that was the end of the story and we speculated that she stopped having children, she carried on being perfectly well um, and unfortunately, we now know that is not the case. Um, we have conducted some more research. Um, we've had one of our fantastic archive researchers working on it for us. And we now know that, you'll see her here, I think you can just about make out her name here. Um, she is subsequently admitted to a number of other asylums. And she goes from being the wife of a broker to the wife of a furniture dealer. Gradually, her husband descends the social scale, and so does Emma. And so although she doesn't come back to Bethlehem, she's admitted to St Luke's. She has several admissions to Coney Hatch, to Bethlehem Green Asylum, to Camberwell Asylum. And when she dies in 1875, between 1853, when we first know her and her death, there are only seven years of her life when she is not at some point in an asylum. So it really is um, a, a very sad story. And there's clearly much more work that we need to do. Um, but that's as far as we've got at the moment with who was Emma Richards. Thank you very much. So I'm trying to work out where to put myself so you can see the screen <laughs> and the pictures. Mm, probably not here. Okay, I can use that. Okay, so I'm I'm Cathy, um, and I'll be talking about some of the Guildhall Art Gallery's um, Victorian art. A bit of a change of pace from that fantastic uh, talk. Um, and our archive is our paintings collection, um, and we're known for our Victorian collection. Not all of it was collected in the Victorian period, although a lot of it was um, collected as contemporary art. Um, but I want to talk about um, kind of how we interpret a piece in our collection, this um, painting by Albert Moore um, called Pomegranates. Um, and it's really about positioning our collection and how we might um, 
how we might interrogate it for future because there is a potential Albert Moore exhibition that we may, uh, that we may take on in, in a few years' time. Um, this, uh, this painting was not collected by the Victorian curator of the art gallery. It was actually a bequest from the 1950s um, when conventional wisdom had it that you, you, know, you couldn't give away Victorian art. It was not, not having its moment. Um, and I suppose what you see here is, um, to give you a sense of its scale, it's really small. It's, it's 25 by 35 centimetres. It's very small um, sort of cabinet-sized painting. Um, so it was exhibited at the, at the Royal Academy in 1866. Um, but that size of picture uh, was really designed to be collected by uh, an individual to put in their, in their home. Um, so it's a kind of domestic size. Um, it currently hangs in a, a section of our gallery on the theme of home, which I think maybe you know is rather dubious because it's just because it's a sort of domestic interior and it's a little bit of a stretch to say that that's the the section it belongs in. Um, but I'll explain a bit about um, about why that that might be as well. Um, so that's a very loose interpretation of this picture. Um, but I've always been uh, intrigued by it um, for the following reasons. Um, more, just to give you an idea of um, more. I mean, he's a very, um, I would say, probably some fairly under-researched um, Victorian artist. Um, the youngest of twelve children, uh, son of a painter himself, and apparently a very quiet, dedicated, and as you can tell from this, very precise artist. Um, Rossetti called him a, a dull dog. Um, if you considered the kind of dog that Rossetti was, possibly that's a compliment. Um, and he's said to be a somewhat lonely figure but and very quiet and introverted and how true that is, I'm, I'm not quite sure. He's a very talented draftsman and exhibited very young um, at, at the Royal Academy um, with pre-Raphaelite influence, um, as you can probably tell in, in the precision. Um, and his early work was on frescoes, so painting oils directly onto plaster, doing decorative work for Morrison Company, um, fabric, tiles, wallpapers, um, and a meticulous artist who was a good friend and close associate of Whistler. Um, and Whistler uh, and he had a, a close working relationship. Um, and this picture kind of combines his interest in the classical world, um, the old Elgin marbles, as usual, are a source of inspiration, um, and depicting sort of drapery and classical figures. Uh, but it combines that classical interest with the shallow space and subtle colouring of Japanese uh, prints, which Whistler introduced him to. Um, and just to give you a point of comparison, um, this is a composition by Whistler, um, of two years after pomegranates appeared, uh, three figures, pink and grey, um, which is held at the Tate. Um, and indeed, the Albert Moore painting that I'm talking about is currently on loan in a Whistler exhibition in the Smithsonian, so the, their sort of interchange is, is constantly being examined. Um, and Moore is a sort of bridging figure between pre-Raphaelite clarity and observation through neoclassical preoccupation and aestheticism, um, kind of the art for art's sake, <coughs> pointing towards that emphasis on technique rather than narrative. Um, so this picture uh, is a sort of narrative-free zone. It is a composition. It is designed to evoke atmosphere, um, mood, and really it's a, uh, an exercise in colour theming and perfecting of composition. It's not 
a story painting, which is the prevailing uh, and dominant um, preference of the Victorian public, the gallery-going public, in the 1860s. Um, this points towards a kind of aestheticism with a, with a big A. Um, so what did the Victorians make of Moore? Um, well, they found him unsuggestive, undomestic, unemotional for the most part, uh, the pictures of Moore are in ma- many respects deficient in the sentimental and imaginative qualities which the English public looks for in works of art, um, and without which painting has comparatively little attraction for them, uh, says the uh, magazine of art in 1885. Um, and he was criticised uh, for that, um, but also for his anachronism, in that, unlike Alma Tadema or Leighton, this is not a precise rendering of any particular classical design. This is... Um, this is bringing in elements of, of Victorian interior design um, drawn from the classical world, but this is not precise observation of specific types of dress or patterns. Um, so it's a much more imaginative exercise than, than that. Um, and so it's, it's a decorative piece rather than um, kind of accurate rendering of, of the classical world. Um, but this writer of the magazine of art also said to complain of him uh, for not being ancient Greek when he only wishes to be English of the 19th century would be as wise as to complain of a pear tree for not producing peaches. So his contemporary critics recognised him as doing something particularly um, contemporary and Victorian rather than um, <coughs> historic. Um, so why pomegranates? So you can see pomegranates in this bowl, but they're sort of neither here nor there. And I would suggest, I mean, the subject of this painting is all pomegranates because it's the colour of pomegranates. It's um, pomegranates woven through everything. Um, If you were going to kind of ascribe an atmosphere or a feeling from this painting, I think the the, the artist kind of says that that is pomegranates. Pomegranates is the feeling you get from this. Um, And, I mean, it sort of almost theoretically kind of abstracts the pomegranate to become the overall scheme uh, and we might think of it as akin to a piece of jewellery, sort of finely wrought, decorative, but not affecting in any um, emotional way, and that is um, intentional. Um, this is to convey the pleasure of seeing and to create a kind of synesthesia, I suppose, a kind of um, combination of sensations that it suggests. So perhaps it suggests taste and smell from fruit, but also texture and tactility. Um, and I would... The, the reason that I chose this picture um, is because I'm always fascinated by the relationship of the women to this overall picture. Why are they there? Um, Because they're not telling a story. They are doing something completely banal. They're um, seemingly, you know, I mean, putting plates into a sideboard. You know, it's it's not... um, They almost become part of the furniture. And uh, as figures rather than women, they're they're painted like incidental, incidental to the scene. You you know, more... um, emphasis is placed almost on the the decorative features and they sort of recede into the background Um, and I can't quite work out what their function is Um, so just because it's a narrative free painting it it doesn't mean it's without ambiguity um, for me Uh, and I think pomegranates is is actually can be read as a description of them, that they are somehow they are the pomegranates and he has um, form in naming uh, paintings after objects but really they're paintings of women so and particularly fruit so you have apricots <laughs> uh, and apples <laughs> um, 
and red berries. I mean, you know, these are paintings of people, and yet the, the titling is, the emphasis is on the inanimate object. So what is the artist's relationship to the human form and to um, particularly the female form? Um, and if we think about the pomegranate, these sort of hidden pomegranates in the bowl, a pomegranate is, is an extremely suggestive fruit. Um, so anatomically, it's suggestive, um, and it's always associated with, um, with feminine, with female, um, with the body and in, in symbolism as well. Um, which I'll maybe come on to a bit, a bit later. Um, but that I suggest there's a sort of covert eroticism going on here, that the artist is sort of disingenuously drawing your attention away from the women. Um, you know, this kind of sucking on a cherry stalk here and this draping and, and, and kind of uh, languid, sensuous um, pose that, that's adopted. Um, and even the, you know, the way he's giving you sort of three dimensions of the same woman almost, you're looking... Kind of at different angles of, of three women who are um, <coughs> kind of almost seen in triplicate, um, despite the seemingly banal activity. Um, so, I, I mean, it's possible that the envir environment that they're in reflects something of the colour and life of them as figures, but also that they're sort of sucking up the aesthetic qualities of their surroundings to become pomegranate. And, and this kind of fleshy pink colour, again, gives you that undercurrent, perhaps, of, of covert... Um, sensual um, interest um, and they're, they're sort of freeze-like arrangements and yet um, I think he's, there's, a, there's a tendency to suggest something slightly more um, fleshy about them and I can never quite work out if it's a warm or a cold painting that it's, it's, got, a, it's got that suggestion that it's, you know, the colour scheme would suggest a warmth and yet there is a, a kind of coldness in its composition and in its slight, um, slight distance um, so to just compare the way, I mean, the pomegranate, the, probably the best kind of, um, the most likely uh, source for symbolism in pomegranates for Victorian artists is the Persephone myth um, and the um, association of the pomegranate as a kind of sex and death fruit um, that has symbolism in Greek myth. And you can see is handled absolutely bang on sex and death in Rossetti, um, which is which comes slightly later than, than Albert Moore's work. Um, but this is what the pomegranate means, <laughs> and the pomegranate um, in Moore becomes slightly uh, sort of moves slightly away from this. Um, it's a symbol of fertility and good luck in some cultures, and particularly modern Greece, it's kind of transcended from being a, a symbol of death and the underworld to being a symbol of good luck. Um, and is broken on the ground at weddings and things like that. Um, and, you know, uh, in ancient... Um, sorry. <laughs> in uh, ancient Egypt, it was a symbol of prosperity, ambition. In Persia, you have a myth of a pomegranate um, being eaten by a hero and giving him eternal life. Um, in ancient Israel, they're known as uh, the fruit that scouts brought to Moses to demonstrate the fertility of the promised land. Um, and in Jewish tradition, they symbolise fruitfulness, lots of seeds, um, and they're traditionally eaten at Rosh Hashanah. Um, and it's thought or theorised sometimes that the pomegranate is the, the fruit in the Garden of Eden. Um, and so it's, it still appears in liturgical vestments as well um, in Christian tradition. Um, there's, a, there's some really nice sort of occidental um, associations of the pomegranate as well. Uh, in Hin Hinduism, it symbolises prosperity, fertility. Um, it's associated with um, the earth, 
kind of earthiness. And my favourite uh, kind of symbolism of this is in, Ta- in Tamil, the name is a, me- it's a metaphor for a woman's mind, so it has as many seeds that it kind of is hard to know. Um, and and it's, it's always associated with, with the female, whether in, in body or in, or in mind. Um, but with all of that kind of, all those connotations behind it, I'm not saying that Moore is using those, but they are there to be, to be considered. It kind of encourages um, me as a curator to rethink how we might interpret this piece for the public, how we might look at the only piece of Albert Moore um, that we have in the collection um, and how we might pair it with something other than the neoclassicists, the Almatadamers and uh, Leightons, how we might kind of draw it out of quite a small uh, box where um, it's perhaps possible to view this in a slightly different way and in a slightly more contemporary way um, and not view it as just a piece of um, decorative, narrative-free, um, nice-to-have-on-the-wall type of um, artwork. Thank you very much, Patty, talking about uh, from the Guildhall Art Gallery. And next up, we have Ruth from the Salvation Army Archive. Hello. Um, so in, Ju- in July 1885, um, a climate of moral panic was stirred up in Britain by the publication of The Maiden Tribute of Modern Babylon, a journalistic expose um, that was serialised in the popular London evening newspaper, the Pall Mall Gazette. The Maiden Tribute series revealed the murky world of juvenile prostitution and the white slave trade through several sensational real-life stories that had been uncovered by the so-called Secret Commission. The commission um, was directed by the Gazette's editor, W.T. Stead, in the bottom left there, who was a pioneer of campaigning journalism. However, the commission's success um, also depended on the support and close collaboration um, of several other public figures, including... Uh, the well-known social purity campaigner above me, um, Josephine Butler, and um, Bramwell Booth in the middle there, who who was the second in command of the Salvation Army and the eldest son of its founder, William Booth. Their common goal um, in the investigation was to put pressure on Parliament to pass the Criminal Law Amendment Bill, which would raise the age of consent from 13, as it was then, to 16. Josephine Butler had long been campaigning for this change and her efforts had resulted in the Criminal Law Amendment Bill being introduced to Parliament in 1883. However, by May 1885, it still hadn't been passed and it looked set to be dropped altogether. Um, Butler was connected with the Salvation Army through its rescue work for women, which had begun in 1884. Bramwell Booth and his wife Florence, at the end there, um, were responsible for this fledgling field of Salvation Army work, and they had been repeatedly shocked by the stories of the fallen girls who approached them for help. It was one such story, which is known as the Shoreham case, that kick-started the Maiden Tribute investigation when the story was reported to W.T. Stead. This was the the tale of Annie, um, a 15-year-old girl from Shoreham who had been tricked into prostitution in Pimlico after answering an advert for a domestic service position. 
far from any of her friends or family who could have helped her, um, Annie managed to escape from the brothel where she had been where she was being held captive and made her way to the safety of the Salvation Army headquarters thanks to finding its address printed on a songbook that she'd been given at a religious meeting. (laughs) Um, The last person to mention is this lady here, if I stand out of the way, um, Rebecca Jarrett. Um, Jarrett was a reformed prostitute and procuress who had recently been saved um, by Florence Booth in the Salvation Army's rescue home before being sent to Josephine Butler's home of rest in Winchester. Jarrett's help and expertise um, were enlisted in the Maiden Tribute investigations with rather unfortunate consequences. She was asked to use her former contacts to procure a girl of 13, a virgin, who would then be put through the motions of um, what a child abducted for prostitution would go through, um, although she would never actually be violated. The child that Rebecca procured was called Eliza Armstrong. Once she was taken from her family, Eliza was subjected to an examination by a midwife to certify her virginity. Um, She was taken to a brothel, administered chloroform, and left alone with a man with W.T. Stead, who could have, the idea was, but didn't um, take advantage of her. After these steps had been taken um, to demonstrate how easily something like this could be done for um, more nefarious purposes, Eliza was placed in the care of a Salvation Army family in France while the revelations came out. Um, So Eliza's story was printed on the first day of the serial as um, a child of 13 bought for £5, (coughs) although in the story her name was changed to Lily. As had been hoped, the articles proved quite a sensation and um, they created the public pressure necessary to um, force Parliament to pass the Criminal Law Amendment Bill a few months later in August 1885. However, all didn't go smoothly for Stead and the Salvation Army. (coughs) Eliza's mother actually recognised the lily of the story as her own daughter and um, charges of abduction um, were brought against Stead, Jarrett and Bramwell Booth. Bramwell Booth ended up being acquitted, um, but both Stead and Jarrett were found guilty and sentenced to three and six months in prison respectively. So that's the background, but where are the traces of this episode in the Salvation Army's archives? Well, as you've already seen, we have copies of the maiden tribute issues of the Palmal Gazette. Um, we also have full back series of the War Cry and other Salvation Army periodicals. In 1885, um, the War Cry and the other periodicals covered the events from a Salvation Army perspective. Well, in later years, um, obituaries of all the key players were printed. Josephine Butler's when she died in 1906, W.T. Stead in 1912 when he died in the sinking of the Titanic, and, as we have here, Rebecca Jarrett in 1928. Um, Their obituaries all retell the Maiden Tribute story because it's what made them most famous in Salvation Army circles. We also have um, the book of statements that the Salvation Army took down from women who sought help in its first rescue home, which was known as the Hanbury Street Refuge. These include Rebecca Jarrett, um, Annie Ring, the showroom girl, and a number of others whose stories were sensationally retold in the Maiden Tribute series. As you can see, um, the statements include quite detailed case histories. 
Another thing that we have is the personal recollections of some of those who were involved. We've got three um, short biographies that were written, or short autobiographies actually, that were written by Rebecca Jarrett in her later life. And we also have Bramwell Booth's retrospective notes on the case. And um, in these, he actually places himself in a much more active position that was then was acknowledged in the official printed version of the story. Um, we also have a lot of correspondence between those involved. Um, these letters, for instance, are from Rebecca Jarrett to Florence Booth shortly after um, Eliza Armstrong's story had been revealed. In the first um, here, uh, Rebecca is writing from Josephine Butler's rescue home in Winchester, um, saying that she's being threatened by people who are angry about her role in Eliza Armstrong's abduction. And in the second, she's writing from Jersey, where she had been sent away to, to find some relief from the public anger. Um, we also have letters from Josephine Butler to Florence Booth again. Um, this one, for instance, is from March 1885, before the events of the Maiden Tribute took place. Um, this one expresses her anger at the complicity of society and its institutions, the police, for instance, in the abuse of young girls, um, and it outlines plans for a public prayer meeting to garner support for her campaign. Um, Catherine Booth, who was Bramwell Booth's mother and one of the founders of the Salvation Army, she was also involved in the campaign to raise the age of consent. Um, and between June and November 1885, she sent numerous letters to Queen Victoria um, in an attempt to enlist her help in their campaign. So we have copies of the letters that Catherine Booth sent, as well as the Queen's replies, which were always by proxy. Um, basically, these say again and again that the Queen sympathises, but she can't intervene um, when, some, when a bill is under discussion in the House of Commons or when um, a case is being heard at court. We also have one letter, <coughs> just, just the one, um, from Bramwell Booth to W.T. Stead about the case. Um, this dates from August 1885, by which time Eliza Armstrong's mother had recognised her daughter in the series and made her story known. In the letter, Bramwell is worrying over whether Eliza should be handed back to her parents now that it's been discovered, um, in his, because in his view, they willingly sold her. Um, so he writes... I couldn't make out whether Mrs. Mrs. A, Mrs. Armstrong, really wanted her child. And um, he says, I, I want to save the child if I can. Um, another source that we have is uh, diaries from the time. So this, for instance, is Florence Booth's diary. And as you can see, she recorded um, Eliza Armstrong bought and Eliza Armstrong to Paris. It's possible, we're not sure, these could possibly be later additions, but additions to her diary, but you can see that she also talks about it in the main body, which is definitely from the time. Um, we also have Bramwell Booth's diary um, for the following year, for 1886, mm -hmm. um, which records the ongoing repercussions of um, the investigation. This particular entry, for instance, records the day when... Um, W.T. Stead was released from prison. Um, in our museum, we have the prison uniform that was worn by W.T. Stead. 
um, he would put this on each year on the anniversary of the day he was admitted to prison um, as, a, as a memorial. Um, so this is a picture of him in much later life um, wearing the uniform. I think he put on quite a bit of weight <laughs> in the <laughs> intervening years. Um, one final interesting thing that we have in um, the archive is some surviving letters of abuse that were received um, by the Salvation Army in the aftermath of the Armstrong case. Obviously, due to their quite distinctive uniforms, the Salvation Army members were um, a very visible target for the public anger um, that was aroused by the case, and they suffered, some of them suffered um, physical or verbal abuse. This letter, for instance, was sent to William Booth by the angry father of a young girl. I'll just read some extracts from it. He writes, um, Our only child and sweet daughter, brought up in the fear of God and the tenderest of cares, has through your loathsome, infamous and debauched filth that appeared in the Pall Mall Gazette been irretrievably ruined. I have sworn to take my revenge on you and your colleague, the editor of the Pall Mall Gazette, I have solemnly sworn that I will not fail in my set purpose, even if I have to shoot you like a dog, you <laughs> swindling, blasphemous humbug. <laughs> a word from me would put your barrack dens ablaze. And he ends with just the word vendetta. <laughs> so, um, quite aggressive there. Um, that, so that was a quick overview of the original sources that we have on um, this topic. But one final thing that I think is worth mentioning in this context anyway is that as archivists we really are immeasurably grateful to the researchers who choose to work with um, the records that we look after because it's really the researchers that produce so much knowledge and understanding of the records, so much more than we can as archivists because we're always trying to juggle many different aspects of our job and have a limited amount of time that we can spend on cataloguing each set of papers. <coughs> so as regards the, the material that you've just seen, it's really thanks to um, two of our recent Birkbeck interns and a third researcher from Oxford University that we were actually aware ourselves of the breadth and richness of um, the archives that we have. And that's the point I'd like to finish on. It's that it's through collaboration that we can really bring out the potential of our Victorian archives. Thank you. Thank you, Ruth. And fa fabulous to see Bert's you know, um, involvement in that. Finally, we have Jan Marsh and Lizzie Heath um, on the later Victorian portraits catalogue. Hi, I'm Jan Marsh, and what we have to say is pretty dry compared to what's gone before. Um, later Victorian portraits catalogue. Um, it's a continuation of the National Portrait Gallery series of period catalogues but it's the first to be published exclusively online on the website. And to date, 205 sitter entries and 434 portrait entries have been completed are, 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 are online. We are a three-person team, and our third, third person is Carol, sitting at, standing at the back there. Um, and the, the catalogue is published by Occupational Category, and each trance then functions as a coherent body of work. 
and the already published sections include artists and art world figures including Albert Moore who has so few portraits you'd be amazed <laughs> compared to the rest of the artists in the world travellers and explorers philanthropists and social reformers including Butler and medical pioneers and work is currently underway on 32 actors and performers and hopefully the next list will be literary figures so um, portraits of writers of the late Victorian period including Wilkie Collins, Christina Rossetti, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle and so on Now, the digital format of the catalogue allows for a more expansive approach than uh, printed. So each portrait, you have to uh, bear with us, in the MPG's collection receives an in-depth entry of this, which is the top of it. And it focuses on who, when, where, how, why, the context, the relationship between artist and sitter, the reason for the portrait, the record of sittings, the price paid, I mean the money paid, provenance, acquisition, all the technical matters, plus exhibition and reception history, if there is, if there is one. And to contextualise this, or to accompany this, chronological lists of all known portraits of that sitter are compiled, comprising paintings, drawings, sculptures, caricatures, prints, posthumous and doubtful likenesses and photographs which as you can imagine in the late 19th century was an exploding era um, area now this is how it works within the comprehensive iconographies links to digitised images enable the user to chart a sitter's visual biography uh, you see the listing on the left and links to portraits in external collections were central to the design of the catalogue and that allows a level of comparative analysis that simply isn't possible in a printed source with its limited number of illustrations um, and bringing together information on all known likenesses of a sitter also, most crucially, reveals the trajectory of individual celebrity Um, in this first age of photographic portraiture and that mass dissemination of images of which Liz is going to tell us more in a minute and cataloguing according to occupational groups reveals intensive social and professional networks um, particularly evident in the art world where there are personal and artistic connections through linked portrait entries and patterns of reciprocal mutual portrait making, such as these useful friendship portraits at the top of and by John Everett Millet and William Holman Hunt of the PRB, and the similar more mature images below by <coughs> George Frederick Watts and Alphonse Le Gros, two of the sort of doyens of the art world. Overall, we intend the catalogue as a central resource for studies in the history, uh, in, in the social history, and in the portraiture of the late Victorian of late Victorian Britain. And its major strength actually lies in its open access to both scholars <coughs> and the general public, 
and the global public, in fact, not just those able to have access to, to research libraries. And that, that this is, we're beginning to gather valuable testimonies to this effect from the UK and international users. Um, so it is, although it's quite a technical enterprise, it is actually beginning, it is being used. So now over to Lizzie. Thanks, Jan. And, um, and, and Liz is going to explain more detail how you use it. Um, so I'm going to talk briefly today about how we go about the process of researching these late Victorian figures using two case studies to illustrate some of the points just raised by Jan. When embarking upon a new sitter entry, the gallery always serves as a central primary resource for our research. Firstly, we always begin our investigations into a collection portrait with a thorough physical examination of the object out of its frame, either off the wall in the gallery or in our Southwark store, gathering clues including signatures, inscriptions, dates and information concerning sale or exhibition history that we can glean from old exhibition labels and other markings on the reverse. Secondly, the dedicated documentation file associated with the object and held with the gallery's institutional archive is another important source of information regarding a portrait's acquisition history, provenance. Uh, so the wide resources for portraiture research maintained in the gallery's Heinz archive and library also serves an important starting point when beginning to compile a sitter's iconography. In the case of the Shakespearean actress Dame Helen Terry, uh, reputedly the most portrayed actress of the Victorian stage, this was no mean feat. Uh, the National Portrait Gallery has nine primary collection portraits of her and 194 photographs and prints. Uh, and her, her larger photographic iconography is immense. During her lifetime, she uh, consciously used portrait photographs to promote both her work and her personal celebrity. So to this end, the individual sitter boxes containing collected images of portraits of an individual are of vital use, and these can be seen here arranged on the shelves in the background. Um, so too are the paper slips containing references to portraits of individuals reproduced or referenced in publications, and these are visible in the boxes in the foreground. So this is a closed paper archive, although the indexing uh, is now continued electronically by gallery staff. Other resources that aid our research include iconographical notes, notes on artists and notes on collections, all of which are accessible to scholars and members of the public by appointment. Once information available in the gallery's archive is exhausted, we turn our attention towards identifying external archives, libraries and collections that contain traces of catalogue sitters. For Terry, an obvious source was her country home, Small High Place in Kent, where she lived during the last three decades of her life. Now run by the National Trust, this is also a repository of portraits of the actress, including paintings, sculptures, prints, and a vast, largely uncatalogued collection of photographs. Digital resources were also helpful in this respect. Uh, in London, the V&A's guide little collection of theatrical photographs, for example, but also when attempting to trace her presence in the United States, holdings in the New York Public Library uh, and Washington's Folger Shakespeare Library proved useful as well. However, though we aim to be comprehensive, we're only able to achieve what time and resources allow, and it's highly likely that an additional non-digitised material relating to Terry is held by collections in the States. I'm hopeful that in future, these will also come to light through further cataloguing and online publication, uh, and that as we frequently update and enhance our catalogue records, more images can be incorporated into our online reference. So it's clear to see that the density of portrait imagery of Terry increased as her career developed. 
Uh, and the scope of her iconography is further complicated by abundance of portraits showing her in and out of character. The catalogue allows the user to compare these two different types of likenesses by separately grouping portraits of her in role and as herself. It is evident that for each new part, Terry would return to a few favoured studio photographers through which she could publicise her performance yet control her image. In contrast, photographs of her are out of character on the left there are much less formal in setting and attitude, though are still, one sense, is equally contrived. The gallery's holdings of portraits of Victorian explorer and journalist Sir Henry Morton Stanley are comparatively small, just two primary collection objects and 38 photographs, although the level of his fame during his lifetime rivaled Terry's, and his iconography is similarly substantial. Stanley's reputation dipped uh, after his death during the 20th century, uh, and this is reflected in the few known posthumous portraits to have been executed, as opposed to the steadier rate of commemorative images of Ellen Terry. This perceived lack of interest in Stanley resulted in his descendants deciding to sell his personal papers to the Belgian state in the 1980s, King Leopold II having funded many of Stanley's controversial expeditions into the African interior during his later career. This material is now housed in the Royal Museum for Central Africa outside Brussels, uh, to which research trip when compiling his catalogue entry proved essential, comprising as it does hundreds of photographs, correspondence, journals and other manuscripts. A renewed national interest in this figure, however, is reflected through the recent installation of a life-size bronze statue uh, close to his birthplace in Denby in Wales, as recently as 2011. Considering the shape of Stanley's iconography as a whole, it's evident the production of portraits clustered around two significant moments in his career. His encounter with the Scottish missionary David Livingstone at Lake Tanganyika in 1872, and in 1890, following the Emin Pasha relief expedition, led by Stanley ostensibly to rescue the besieged governor of Equatoria. Before 1872, there are relatively few recorded portraits of Stanley, but after this date, and coinciding with the rapid expansion of the 19th century periodical press, he makes an almost daily appearance in publications such as the Graphic and the Illustrated London News, featuring images illustrating the famous meeting between the two men. Similarly, photographic portraits of Stanley increased substantially after his return from Africa, as our online reference attests. These studio photographs commemorate the expedition and attempt to add authenticity by showing Stanley in his expedition uniform against a painted backdrop, and even including in some Mahali, the young African boy he brought back with him. The high level of public interest in such images at this time is reflected in the fact of the registration for copyright by a number of commercial photographers intended for distribution as cards to visite and cabinet cards. Furthermore, the illustrated press saw a profusion of images marking the progress of the Emin Pasha relief expedition, often based on sketches and material Stanley supplied himself, whilst the catalogue recalls a series of formal uh, photographs taken by a number of leading portrait photographers after his return to England in 1890. So I hope this evening just have given a brief illustration of how the later Victorian portraits catalogue works and can be used, as well as an insight through these case studies into our approach to researching 19th century figures using a range of archival resources and collections. And as I mentioned, work on the catalogue is ongoing, uh, subject to securing funding to cover particular city groups. Thank you.